Today, as uh, we uh, jump into this, let me begin uh, by just uh, addressing for a moment those of you who are viewing online today. Uh, uh, I can say this for everyone and those viewing online. Uh, I am praying for you. I know our pastors uh, have been doing that consistently. I know we don't get to see each other face to face as often these days, or you get to see my face, I don't get to see yours. And, uh, but I'm praying for you. I know it is hard, particularly those of you who are viewing virtually. Uh, please reach out to us if you have any needs. Uh, please call our office. Uh, let me just remind you as well, do not concern yourself or be anxious about anyone thinking you should be here in person at church. You are making a decision, many of you, for your safety. You're following some of the best uh, directions that you have. And so for that, you need to be content with where you're at right now. And uh, don't be worried about that. Rest in that. Uh, As a caution for not just those online, but for everybody. Uh, Some of us, it's easy to get very self-absorbed during this time and think, no one is reaching out to me. Why haven't I heard from this person or this person? You know, that's not the focus that you should have. It's not, why is anyone looking at me? You ought to constantly be trying to seek, how can I help other people during this time? And so instead of looking internally, look externally and think, who can I minister to at this particular juncture? Continue to pray for our church in reference to unity. Pray that God would use this. You know, in in Philippians chapter 1, when hard times came to the Apostle Paul, he said, pray that God would use this for the furtherance of the gospel. And uh, I'm seeing it. Some of you may not be seeing it. But God is doing some neat things through this hard time. And so let's pray for that. Of course, continue to be sensitive with each other here. Of course, many of you know as the cases rise in Georgia, there's different people who are coming in here with different sensitivities. And you may not know that. Uh, But please give people a little bit of their distance uh, during this time. Follow those recommendations. We've put a lot of things in place here, and it's easy over time to relax those things. But try not to. And uh, those of you who are viewing online, we miss you being in person. But uh, we're praying for you. This morning, we get to return in our series to the life of Abraham. The title of this series is called By Faith. Uh, We began a number of weeks ago, and uh, we are investigating as a church a key book of your Bible, the first book, and we're focusing in on uh, a number of chapters between Genesis 12 and Genesis 25. And today we find ourselves really kind of in the midst of that in Genesis chapter 16. Uh, Many of people uh, would ask, why study Abraham? Uh, I kind of answered that question during our introductory message Let me just remind you why we're investing a significant amount of time looking at this man's life. First of all, he is a central figure in numbers of our world's religions. In fact, if you get to know him and know a lot about his life, this is a great entry point into evangelism with other people because it's common ground. And if you can establish some common ground, you can move toward helping each other understand better what God is doing in the midst of this world. Uh, Another reason we're studying him is this. He was a friend of God. In fact, God tells us he is his, Abraham was his friend. And I'll tell you this, I want to get to know God's friends. 
I want to know how do I become a friend of God? If this guy figured it out, then I want to figure it out. A third reason is this. This guy is in the hall of faith. You say, what's the hall of faith? We have a, a, a hall of fame for the NFL at Canton, but the hall of faith is in Hebrews chapter 11 of people who live by faith on this earth. And Abraham is one of the man, men highlighted of being a man of faith. In fact, let me tell you that Abraham is in heaven today. He's with God. You want to be with God one day? Well, Abraham is there. And so if you want to learn the pathway to spend eternity with God, you can learn it from the life of Abraham. What is faith? This man had it. What is it? Well, it's believing without actually seeing. Believing without seeing. It's trusting in God. Why is faith so important? Well, listen to what Hebrews eleven six 6 says. Very key text. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Did you know that it is only through faith in God's son, Jesus Christ, that you will ever be able to see and live eternally with the Lord. Faith is essential. For by grace are you saved through what? Through faith. So we have got to learn about faith. And so today, as we return to Abraham's life, we want to pick up after what I would say would be a mountaintop experience. Genesis 15, which precedes Genesis 16, was a mountaintop experience. We ran into the Abrahamic covenant where God uh, really locks down into a commitment with this man Abraham of what he's going to do. You know, the Christian life is so often filled with ups and downs. Well, today we come to a downer. I mean, here he is on the mountaintop. Well, he goes into a deep valley. In our text today, he makes some mistakes. Well, the promises that God had given Abraham, all of them that he laid out up to this point, were all contingent on one particular promise. And that was this, a promise of a son, that God would give him a son. And that promise up to this point in Abraham's life was unfulfilled. It's interesting that in our journey of faith, all of you in here, on your journey of faith, there will be significant blocks of time between promises and fulfillments. God promises something and when he finally fulfills it. And it's in between those times that our faith is desperately needed. But it's interesting, as time goes by, so if you were going down the spectrum of time, what normally happens as time between promise and fulfillment goes, questionings oftentimes go up. Why is this happening? Why are you allowing this length of time to happen before you fulfill this promise? As questionings go up, so often faith can take a nosedive. Faith goes down. God 
Didn't you promise me that you would care for all of my needs? Well, honestly, God, right now it doesn't look like you're doing it. I'm in the midst of now having to get a second job to take care of my needs. In fact, even my child's having to help me pay for my bills at this time. You said you'd care for me. What's going on here, God? God, you said that peace you'd leave me. Not as the world gives, but the one that you give. You're going to leave peace. Well, God, I'm not finding that peace. In fact, my life is chaos right now. I'm anxious. I'm nervous. I'm scared. You promised this. I'm not seeing it, God. God, you said that there would be no situation that would be too difficult for me to bear. This right here that you have me in is unbearable, God. What's going on here? You know, it's during these times in our life that there seems at times to be no answer from heaven. It's like you're, you're not getting a hold of God. It's like during this COVID-19 world, some of you had maybe plane tickets to go certain places. And you're trying to get a hold of the airline. I remember at one point I was trying to get a hold and move some tickets around. And it was like I could not get anybody on the phone. It was like everything was virtual. And you'd push every button and it would reroute you to another virtual assistant. Like I don't want to talk to a virtual assistant. I want to talk to a person. And I want them to listen to me. And you know what? Sometimes in our spiritual life it's like all you're getting is the virtual assistant. And you're just getting rerouted all the way through. And it's like, God, I'm calling to you. You're supposed to answer me. You're supposed to help me. But I'm not finding it. It's in these times that you know what a lot of us do? A lot of us stop trusting. We stop waiting on God. And we say, okay, I'm going to have to take this into my own hands. I'm going to have to be a do-it-yourselfer. And and it's in those times, it is so easy to respond in the flesh. And I'm looking at some of you, you are there. That's where you're at right now. You're responding in the flesh. And you know what this does? This leads us to begin to doubt God's character, God's love, God's care, God's power. In our text this morning, in Genesis chapter 16, we are going to see something that is absolutely marvelous. And it's this. Even when we run away, God calls us home. Even when we run away, God calls us home. You know what? Even when our faith walking deteriorates into fleshly living... God is still working out his plan and he is still gracious and he is still loving. He is still doing what he has promised that he would do. And so today in our text, we're going to see really three simple things. And it's this. First of all, we're going to see three faith failures. We're going to see a divine encounter. And then we're going to see the man at the well. Okay, three things. We're going to see three faith failures, a divine revelation or a divine encounter, 
and the man at the well. First, three faith failures. Let's start with the bad news, okay? We're introduced to the three main characters in this particular text. In fact, in the first verse, listen to what it says. Now, Sarah, there she is, Abram's wife, there's Abram, had borne him, Abram, no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. So here they are, Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, three main characters. And here we're going to see three faith failures. You know what, our, our text opens up with a crisis. Sarah has had no child. God had told Abraham that he would have an heir. But now it had been, here it is, 10 years later. You know, some of you have been waiting for God for a certain amount of time to fix something. Maybe it's a health need, or maybe it's a promise. And you says, I've waited a year. Here's a woman, she'd been waiting 10 years for this. Having seen only unfulfilled promises, you know what Sarah does? She does what many of us do. She takes life into her own hands. Verse 2, it says this. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. You know what? In hard circumstances, let me tell you, you need to beware of fleshly responses. How did the culture of Sarah's day deal with her type of problem, barrenness? She was barren, and so what does she do? She tries to look at her culture. What are they doing? How are they dealing with this? Well, her solution was to give Abram, her servant, to produce an heir. That particular practice, now for us, way off, but that practice was substantiated in ancient Near Eastern studies. This is kind of the social norm of that day. A servant could be substituted for a barren mistress. She would have kind of an inferior status to the primary wife, but it was a common practice. In fact, it is in uh, one of the codes of that particular day and age. However, what do we know? It was wrong. It was dead wrong. In fact, it was breaking the one flesh unity of marriage that God established in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be what? One flesh. One plus one equals one and they are to stay together. That was God's plan, not to have three in this union. This particular problem that we're going to see develop in Genesis chapter 16 is going to occur later in Jacob's life as well. And did you know that oftentimes... When God doesn't seem to be moving in our way, or there seems to be apparent gaps in his promise. And I'm probably, her mind was beginning to play tricks on her. She said, okay, God promised Abram that he would have a son. Now she was married to him, so she's thinking, maybe I'm going to die and he's going to remarry. Or maybe this, and her, her mind starts playing tricks. And so what's going on now is she begins to move from trusting to this, to manipulating. 
All of you in this room, you're good at it. You're good at manipulating. And what we can do is we can choose to do things the way the world does it. We look for answers in all the wrong places. It's interesting, you know in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, listen to what it says. Isaiah 8, should not a people inquire of their who? Of their God. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? No. To the teaching and to the testimony. You know where we should go? We should go to God's word. We shouldn't be those who go to consult the dead. I'm going to find out my answers all these other places. You know what? Our world will give their wisdom to you. But you know what their wisdom is? Their wisdom is foolishness. And they will give it to you liberally. Okay, It's getting pumped to you all the time. We can be tempted to get our cues from social media rather than the Lord. You know what? When problems like this arise, I will tell you, stop scrolling your phone and consult the ancient scrolls. Okay? Because this world is full of foolishness. What does this condition often lead to? It does this. We begin to, and and I'll say this, beware of improperly blaming God. Because all this will lead to, okay, God, this is your fault. We begin to see God as either dead or distant. I remember years ago when I was, I think in high school or something, there was a uh, a popular movie among ladies, and I ended up having to watch it. It was that old movie called Beaches. Uh, Bette Midler was uh, one of the main characters in it, and there was a song that became popular at that time that many people enjoyed, and it was, it basically talked about this, God is watching us from a distance, and if you just listen to the song, and, you, and like a lot of us do, we don't even pay attention real closely to the words. We can say, oh, it's a beautiful song. God's watching me from a distance. But let me tell you how subtle it is. God is not watching you from a distance. He is near to you, not afar off. And if you listen to the words of that song, it says, from a distance, it appears like there's no guns, there's no this, there's no this, there's no this. And it is a deistic form of understanding of God. That God kind of started the clock and then he stepped away and he's not really near. And if we're, if we're not careful, you and I are so prone and our default mode is to begin to doubt who our God is and doubt what he's like. God is a God who is near. So notice that Sarah correctly states God's power in bearing a child, that he is sovereign. Remember, she says, God has prevented me from having a child. Now, was that true? That is a true statement that he is the one who's in charge of giving kids. In fact, Psalm 127 verse 1, that at this point hadn't been written yet, but it says this, it says, Except the Lord, or unless the Lord builds the house, they labor, uh, they build it, or, or those who build it labor in vain. 
You and I cannot produce a child on our own. God is the one who gives it. Every child that is born, it's because God opened that womb. And so what's happening is this. She has right theology. She's right that God is the one in charge of all that. She has right theology, but she has a wrong response to it. And there's a lot of you in this room that you have really good theology. You understand that God is in control, but you have a wrong response to it. You're upset with God about certain things. You got the facts right, but you're bitter. You're upset. You're not resting in him. You're doubting him. And as just a side note, it's interesting that the proper response to barrenness in the Bible, you know what it is? It's prayer. Patient, constant prayer. You see that in Abimelech's story of where in order for God to open the wombs, Abraham was supposed to what? Pray for them. You see it in Isaac's life. You know what Isaac does? They pray. Prayer is the answer. You see this in Hannah. When she wanted a child, you know what? She poured out her soul to the Lord. That's the response to it. But you do not see that in who? Here. You do not see that in Sarah. Or maybe she got tired of it. She got frustrated about it. So faith failure number one is Sarah. Okay? And I'll tell you what it is. It's sin. When you and I don't believe God, anything that's not of faith is what? Is sin. I'm not believing. I'm doubting. You're falling short of the glory of God. Sin is what all of us do. It happens often. It's sin. So how would Abraham do? Okay, first person in the story, she messed up. How does Abraham do? Well, let's see. End of verse 2, it says this. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So let's see what happens. Well, what does he do? He sins. Okay, now he was told, okay, I mean... First of all, it's interesting how this account kind of mimics the temptation in the garden a number of chapters before. You remember in in Eden, when Adam and Eve were there, Adam's wife desired something. She falsely understood God's provision for her, and so she tempted Abram with breaking God's command or she tempted Adam with breaking God's commandment here Sarah tempts Abram into breaking God's commandment and that was the marriage covenant what does Abram do he gives in just like Adam he he falls for the sin and says okay let's go do this and that's where we run into this second faith failure he sins he gets involved in a relationship that he should never have started he, would, he had been told that he would have a son of his own. But he goes against God's plan and he also manipulates. Here, let me just stop for a moment and talk to our married men in this room. You were probably told somewhat wisely, she is always right. <laughs> or the way you're supposed to answer your wife is, yes, dear. And normally, you, you find that counsel at weddings, and uh, hey, let me remind you, 
And normally that is very good advice. Let me just tell you that. However, God's word says that she is not always right. You must obey God. He is your ultimate authority. Just because your wife is okay with wrong doesn't mean that it is right for you to do. If your wife was okay with allowing you to indulge in sexual desire outside the marriage bonds, that doesn't give you the green light. Never. God is your authority and you must obey him. Here Abram goes the way of Adam. He follows in his forefather Adam and it reminds us, and here right in the middle of this message, it reminds us, We need a better Adam, don't we? We need a better Abraham. Because up to this point, all the men are failing. When are we going to get the second Adam who is going to obey in every stance and do what's right? When are we going to get our substitute who's going to make a difference for us? Well, let me tell you, we're going to get to him in a minute. And his name is Jesus. He's the one who's going to solve all this. So here is Adam. He should have refused. He should have just had a little conversation with Sarah. Sarah, you're overreacting here. Let me remind you of what we've learned. But what does he do? He, he gave into his flesh. Verse 3, it says this. So after Adam had lived 10 years in the land of Cana, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into her And she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So here, what we see is our third failure now. Hagar. Hagar, of course, kind of a pawn in all of this, but she made decisions herself as well. Once she was pregnant... What does she do, the Bible says? She begins to look with contempt on her mistress, Sarah. Ha ha! Look what I got. You've been trying to do this. And what is she doing? She's trying to provoke jealousy, which once again is sin. It's another faith failure. It's another, another way you're not trusting God. And what does she do? She throws gasoline on the fire in Abram's house, or we could say Abram's tent. And it says in verse 5, let me read this one to you. And Sarah said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Okay, let me just give you Brian's translation of this. Okay. It's all your fault. I can't believe you did this, Abram. And what, of course, is Abram thinking? You what? You told me to do it. You said, go do this. And now you're all upset for me for doing this. And she probably would respond, that didn't mean that that you were supposed to do it. I was just talking. Let God judge between us. You did the better, the more evil thing. You had sex with her. I can't believe you did this. And what is Abraham doing? I can't win. 
man, I'm so foolish. Why did I do this? He was responsible, wasn't he? And so was she. They both lived by flesh and by sight and not by faith here. And when you do that, you sin. Here, Abram reminds Sarah, okay, to just go along with the story, Abram now reminds Sarah that she is his priority. He calls Hagar her servant and reminding she's still your servant. It's interesting. It's kind of a play of words. She, she gets on to him and says, you embraced her. You put your arms around her. And he goes back to her and says, she is now in your hands. There's kind of a play on words there. Look what it says in verse 6. But Abram said to Sarah, behold, your servant is in your power, in your hands. Do to her as you please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. And so Hagar may have thought, she may have thought that now she was Sarah's equal in this whole trio. But Sarah treats her harshly and Hagar runs. And this is the first of two accounts where Hagar is running. But let's just stop a moment. And what do we see here up to this point? We see three faith failures. All kind of different. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And each of them were enticed in their own way. Three faith failures. And I'll tell you this. We have all been there, haven't we? You're all a failure when it comes to faith at times. Some of you right now, you, your faith, the, the light's on right now, on the dash. It's like you are very low on it. In fact, you're not going to make it too much farther, you feel like. Now, we know from later in the Bible that Abram and Sarah are still in Hebrews 11. When God looked at their whole life, what did he see? By faith, by faith, by faith. And when you see failure, but you see that, guess what? All of you in this room, you have hope, don't you? The Bible says faith as a grain of a mustard seed can move a what? Can move a mountain. This is good. This is good for me to know. It's good for us to hear. It's good for us to think about. But all of us need to be aware of our tendency for the flesh. We will put ourselves through a whole lot more heartache when you and I respond in our flesh and walk by sight. And what I'm trying to do as your pastor is to tell you, you can save yourself a lot of heartache in those particular times by learning how to live by faith. Where are, you, where are you doubting God? Where are you living in the flesh right now? Can you stop your crazy, busy life to at least look at your dash and see where all the lights are on and say, God, this is an area that I'm doing it. I'm doing wrong. It's wonderful that it is in this particular deep, dark hole as we're at that God once again manifests himself. And it's interesting that he manifests himself to the most unlikely of the three. To Hagar. Some of you would say, man, I'm no Abraham. I'm no Sarah. 
I'm the Hagar, man. I'm the, I'm the bottom of the three. But let me tell you, God loves you. And we're going to see now a divine revelation, a divine encounter. I'll tell you this. I love the grace of God. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. God resists the proud, but he gives what? Grace to the what? To the humble. So as Hagar is running away, God is running toward her. Look what it says in verse 7. And the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Here what we do is we run into for the first time an Old Testament, I mean the first time in our Old Testament, a title is mentioned. And it should almost set off an alarm. Because this is unusual. This is a new name. This person is called the angel of the Lord. Not simply an angel of the Lord, but the definitive, the angel of the Lord. Who is this particular person? What clues do we have of his identity? Well, it's interesting. He is the one who is actually promising Hagar an offspring. And who's the only one who can give offspring as we've already learned? God himself. It's not like he's saying, God has promised you this. He's saying, I will give you an offspring. I will multiply your offspring. In fact, after the encounter, another clue is this. Hagar says that she saw who? She saw God. You know what I believe? And to make a long story short, I believe what we have here in Genesis 16 is what we would call a theophany. Big word. Theo, theos, God. Phony, appearance. An appearance of God. But I will take it one step further. I believe, how did God appear in physical form? I believe this is not simply a theophany. This is a Christophany. You say, what is a Christophany? This is a pre-incarnate. Before Jesus incarnated in the flesh, he appeared in human form on earth. In fact, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. He says, we have not much difficulty in deciding who the angel was that appeared to her. We are sure that this angel of the Lord was that great messenger of the covenant who was afterwards to appear in actual flesh and blood, but who many a time before he was born at Bethlehem anticipated his descent to earth and visited it, visited it in human form. Notice, I love this, he finds her. Isn't that the character of the great shepherd? Sheep who go on wandering, he finds her. He finds her at a watering hole on her way back to Egypt, back to her old lifestyle, back to where she knew her familiarity. Did you notice this? He knows her by name. He calls her by name. He questions her. Where are you going? Now, did he know where he, she was going? Where did you come from? Of course he did. He's God. It's interesting. 
It's so much like an encounter that will happen a little bit later with Elijah in, in the book of, uh, in the Old Testament. Remember when Elijah runs from God in many ways, somewhat in the same area, and God comes to him and says to Elijah, where are you going, Elijah? Did God know where he was going? What are you doing here? And it's interesting God already knew where she was going, and he gives this woman, Hagar, two commands. Look what it says in verse 9. It says this, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. You know, he does the same thing to Elijah. He says, Elijah, get back to work. Go back and anoint these particular people. And you know what he always is telling us? Repent. Turn. Return. God knew what was best for Hagar. Because it was in Abram's family was the knowledge of God. Think about the world at that day. If she went back to Egypt, how much was she going to learn about Yahweh? How much was she going to be instructed? The best place for her was back in Abram's house. It was where the true God was, where blessing was. God then gives her some incredible insight that he would greatly bless her. In fact, she's pregnant, and what he now tells her is this. He says, your offspring, what's going to come from you, is going to not even be able to be numbered. God is answering his promise that he gave to Abram. He says, Abram, one day you will be the father of multitudes. You will. And God is answering that request. But also, you know what you have here? Some of you may not have seen this. This is the first gender reveal in Scripture. You know, for a long period of time, you didn't know, am I going to have a boy or a girl? And we are so thankful for ultrasounds and being able to figure some of these things out. But let me tell you, God tells her, you're going to have a what? You're going to have a son. And And I want you to catch this. He tells her what the name is supposed to be given to this young child. His name is to be called what? Ishmael. Now, if you are, if you're not careful, you're going to miss something that's absolutely beautiful here. What does Ishmael's name mean? Why is it so significant? You know what it means? God hears us in our affliction. What what did Sarah need to be reminded of? What did Hagar need to be reminded of? What do you need to be reminded of when you're going through hard times? God hears you in your affliction. He's there. Now for her, look what it says in verse 11. It says this, And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael. And then you can underline this, Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He's listening to you. He knows about you. She may not have even been praying, honestly. But he heard all that was going on in her life. He hears the the panting of her soul, you could say. And what is he? He's present. He's there. He's listening to your affliction. And some of you, you need to be reminded. He hears you in your affliction. Now, although God would give her a son, 
You read this and you find that God tells her of also with this son who's going to come difficulties. This son is going to be divisive. And we'll see this played out later in our Bibles. But then Hagar does something very enlightening. I hope you'll catch this. She is one of the only people in your Bible who now calls God a name. So often God gives people names. And so often God reveals his names. But she stops and she names this God. She does what? She names a God. She names the God. She gives him another, you could say, a nickname, you could say. Look what it says in verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of what? See. You see me. Not only do you hear me, you see, but it's not like you see. It's this. You see me. An Egyptian servant. You see me. You know what you need to, all of us need to remember? God sees you. In fact, not only does she name God, she names the place. She names the very place that she's at. It says this later in the text. Therefore, verse 14, the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. You say, what does that little phrase mean? Let me give it to you. The well belonging to the living one who has seen me. You know, in our faith failures, which all of us, you got lots of them. What do you need to be reminded of when you fail in your faith? What do you need when you're in the midst of just, you are in, you're not at the well, you're in the well. And you're drowning. What do you need to be reminded of? You have a God who hears you in your affliction. And you have a God who sees you. And you know what that little name was going to do? I mean, I use my son's names all the time. Will, Jacob. Use them constantly. You know what Ishmael was going to always be every time his name was given? Not that they thought about it every time, but all of them. Sarah, Abram, and Hagar. We're going to be reminded God hears us in our affliction. He does. He hears us. I know that many of you right now, you feel like you're wandering in the wilderness, just like Hagar. You feel like you're all alone. You probably feel a lot like the original readers of Genesis who had been wandering in the wilderness. Who failed in their faith on numbers of occasions. But God in his love continues to come to you and remind you, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He is working out his plan. Was he not? He's going to use this, even their sinfulness, to bring manifold good. So the question is, for some of you, you need to go back home. He told Hagar, return home. Go back. Come back. Get back into a place where you should be. Submit yourself. Repent. Trust. Remind yourself of God's character. 
And here, let me stop for just a moment. Or you could say, let me end for just a moment. The final thing I want you to see is the man at the well. You know, in verse 14, we see that this place that she was at, go back to verse 14. And I'd encourage you, if you'd like to mark up your Bible, underline two words. Therefore, the well. Underline the well. We see that this watering hole was a well. God meets a running woman at a well and gets her life back on track. Does that sound familiar to any of you? You know what it reminds me of? A woman at a well. In John chapter 4. 2,000 years later, another hurting woman in John chapter 4 who was wandering in her own life came to a well. She had been knocked around in life, much like Hagar. She was called a Samaritan woman. She had five husbands and she was living in fornication at that very time. And you know what she was? She was really oblivious to her own need. She was just like, I'm just going to get water. Just living life. Oblivious to the spiritual needs of her life. But a man comes and interacts with her. And as he's interacting with her at the well and questioning her, she comes to realize that she is in the presence of none other than the Messiah. Jesus Christ. And she goes into her town and she pronounces, come see a man who knows everything about me. Does that not sound like Hagar? He sees me. He knows me. This is our God. This is Jesus Christ. This is the Savior of the world. This is your Jesus, who doesn't just show up in your New Testament. This is your Jesus, who has been around forever, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. And he is a shepherd, and he is constantly bringing people back to him. He is not just the man at the well, he is the God man at the well. And today, you may be greatly conscious of your failings of faith. And you know what they are? They're sin. You may be wandering and you may be oblivious. But you know what? There is a man at the well who can come to you and he's calling you by name. He has found you today. And he says this to you. What are you doing here? Why are you where you're at right now? You shouldn't be. Come back home. Return to me. And I'll tell you this. He is the one that can give you the living waters that lead to eternal life. Whosoever shall come to me. I mean, whosoever believes on me shall have everlasting life. Believe him. Jesus is the one. 
So we've learned today, even though we wander away, God brings us home, doesn't he? In this world, I see a lot of people running. And probably some of you are on your way to Egypt right now. But you have a God who is gracious enough in church on this day. He may not have manifested himself in visual form, but he's knocking at your door and saying, come back to me. Believe me. Trust me. Jesus said this, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray.